We start, though, talking about civic elections. We know the next civic elections are still about a year and a half away. In Vancouver, though, there is another confirmed candidate for mayor. The NPA has announced current Vancouver Park Board Commissioner John Cooper has been nominated. And John Cooper joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, why do you want to be the mayor of Vancouver? Well, you know, I have a deep love for Vancouver. I was uh, born here. I've raised my family here. Uh, and uh, as you know, I've been a uh, park commissioner for almost 10 years now. I came into uh, politics really uh, to save the Bloodell Conservatory back in 2009. and was successful and then got involved. And I just see that, you know, we have a great city. I believe we have a bright future. But um, I think I have the right experience in terms of business experience and political experience to, to lead uh, our party to victory in the next election. And I'm really looking forward to the challenge. Uh, there has already been uh, quite a bit of talk about the process or perhaps the lack of process that you uh, were announced to the, the nomination uh, instead of there being others that maybe could have come forward and put their hat in uh, to try and be uh, the NPA nominee. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that you were appointed rather than going through that process? Well, the, uh, the NPA has a long history Eleven mayors, and uh, in fact, uh, the party—it's not really a party; it's a—it's an association. It's really a. Their job is to find good candidates that can make good decisions for Vancouver, and certainly uh, Susan Anton was appointed, Kirk Lapointe uh, was appointed most recently. So, out of the last uh, four uh, elections, uh, three of our mayoralty candidates have been appointed, and I think. This time, the party was really looking to make sure that they had a candidate who had the experience and the understanding of how uh, city government works uh, to lead the party forward. So I'm I'm humbled and I'm really honoured to have this opportunity. Uh, so do you have the support of your fellow NPA members, uh, specifically the elected members, uh, people like Sarah Kirby Young? Well, Sarah and I have worked on uh, Park Board for four years, worked very well together. I've been the uh, the caucus chair, you know, this, um, you know, I'm sure there will be some egos that are uh, people that are perhaps upset and will need to take some time to uh, to think about uh, going forward. But I'm confident that we will we'll come together. And I'm also looking to make some positive, uh, you know, changes and, and refresh our uh, NPA board so that uh, we, re- we reflect uh, the whole city of Vancouver. And I'm, I'm excited for that challenge. And uh, so politics is hard work, and uh, keeping everybody um, on the same team together is often hard work, but uh, I feel that I can accomplish that. When you say you think there'll be some, some hurt egos, who are you talking about? Well, I just think, you know, the last time around, uh, you know, when I when I lost the nomination, uh, or didn't get the nomination, uh, you know, I, was, uh, I wasn't happy. We all uh, have aspirations, some have aspirations to, to do more, but... Uh, I think you put the time in and um, hopefully it works out. And uh, so that's the, that's just the way I'm looking at it. I don't have anything specific other than to say that I've had the support of the caucus before I've been the caucus chair. So obviously there was a reason for that. Uh, so do you know then or have you heard from either councillors Colleen Hardwick or Sarah Kirby Young uh, saying that they do support you or, or any reaction to this? Uh, I've had positive reaction uh, from a number of caucus members, I won't get into specific details, but uh, I feel like we'll be in we'll be in good shape. I did speak to uh, Sarah Kirby Young this morning. I spoke to uh, Councillor Di Genova, and obviously, uh, so there's been ongoing conversations. It's a holiday weekend, so uh, I haven't been able to get a hold, talk to everybody. I talked to Councillor Dominato as well, and um, I feel we'll be in a good place in uh, as we move forward. Uh, there have been some concerns as well uh, about the current board of the NPA, uh, members that have had ties to rebel media, members who have so openly supported Donald Trump. Uh, some members of the board uh, left the board because of those reasons. They didn't like the direction it was going. Do you have any concerns about the current makeup uh, and direction of the board? Well, I don't usually get involved in, in board business. I am never have been a supporter of Donald Trump myself, and that's pretty evident. I, I'm a centrist and uh, my everybody knows me quite well in Vancouver. I would say that we will see renewal on our board and, um, you know, there is an, always an ebb and flow and I am concerned about any 
um, any comments that are made that um, that I don't support. And I'll, I'll now, as the leader of the party, I'll be making sure that we are moving forward in a positive direction. And that's uh, what Vancouverites want to see. And that's why I'm doing it. Are you concerned at all if there is an AGM held? Is it possible that a future board could reverse this decision or could decide they want to open up the nomination for mayor? Um, well, we will have an AGM. We have to have an AGM. It's the, um, you know, it's it's mandated under the Societies Act. So I, uh, you know, I've been endorsed uh, to run uh, before by the party by various different boards, and I'm quite sure by uh, when we run when we have an AGM that uh, we'll have a team that uh, works together and we get things done in Vancouver. So no, I'm not worried about that. Uh, one other question, and this has to do with uh, bike lanes, because in your position on Park Board, you've been very vocal about the uh, removal of the uh, line, uh, one lane of traffic in Stanley Park, uh, making that a bike lane. You talked uh, about uh, consultation or a lack thereof in that case. Uh, are there other bike lanes that you would like to address if you were to become mayor, or what is your thought on that? No, I've been generally uh, supportive. I was supportive of the separation of the seawall bike lane from uh, Granville Island uh, through the Olympic Village, and that was uh, a park board initiative, and I was positive on that. I think it's worked out terrifically well. I was concerned primarily about the lack of process around Stanley Park and the lack of uh, uh, ability for those with uh, mobility issues to to get uh, into the park and be able to visit the attractions and the restaurants that they they want to visit and I think I was quite clear about that. We have one of the finest uh, uh, bike lane scenic bike routes in the world around Stanley Park and it's it's fantastic and I think that uh, we just need to be very careful in what we do and make sure that we're not uh, you know throwing our stakeholders who have invested money in their businesses and are great partners and and help the park board deliver services across the city so um, that was not in any bike lane that was really just making sure that there was adequate access for park users. All right, John Cooper, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this. Great, thank you. Have a great day. Well, you likely saw this past weekend the coverage of a couple of restaurants in Vancouver that decided to open the doors to in-house dining, even though there is a provincial health order right now banning that until at least April 19th. At Corduroy Restaurant, this was the crowd reacting to health inspectors arriving. And this was the owner, Rebecca Matthews, speaking with Global News just yesterday about why she decided to keep the doors open and to keep serving customers inside in the dining area. Small businesses have been impacted so hard this past year, and I don't believe it's okay to pick and choose certain industries to shut down. Um, A lot of people saying it's only three weeks, um, but I don't believe that's true. I think they're going to keep moving the goalposts like they have been all year. Um, we've just been blindsided multiple times, um, shut down within 24 hours and people don't realize we don't just come in the restaurant, open the door and open up. We have to buy food, we have to buy alcohol, we have to staff, we have to get prepped. So shutting us down is thousands of dollars each time and reopening again costs thousands of dollars. I am a mom of four. Um, I have mouths to feed. Let's bring in Jeff Guignard, the executive director of Able BC. That's the Alliance of Beverage Beverage Licenses Licensees. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Of course, my pleasure. What goes through your mind? How do you react when you hear that? Well, I can certainly understand where they're coming from and their frustration. But I mean, let's be clear: they're they're breaking the law right now. So we have to start from acknowledging that. You know, these orders are in place for a reason. It's fine if you disagree with them, and there's a lot of important conversations to have around that. Uh, but our whole industry is, is in this together, and it's not okay to, to break the law and flagrantly violate public health orders issued under a state of emergency during a global pandemic. So full stop on that. But there is an important conversation to have about the, why they're feeling that frustrated. And uh, I think you've seen it tapped into a couple of places recently that just that people are at the, the breaking point, right? I mean, our industry has spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars enacting the most stringent public health protocols in the history of this province. And we have been a part of the solution uh, to then be not given any notice and to be shut down again when even Dr. Henry's admitted that our industry has not been a significant source of cases is is very insulting for people and um, causes a lot of financial pain. Uh, 
And I think a lot of people would agree with that. And in fact, we were talking with one of the other the other restaurant owner, uh, Frederico, who mm-hmm. opened up his restaurant. He was on the program on Friday, uh, making uh, some similar points. And his his point too was that he had gone down to ten tables from forty, and there were no cases that were linked to his restaurant. And he felt it wasn't fair at all uh, to be shutting them down while other businesses, stores that would be quite crowded, those are still happening. Yeah, we're having a hard time seeing the logic on some of these orders. Um, and I, I, you know, the government's doing a good job of consulting with the industry, and we, we have come up with the protocols that have been working week after week after week after week, keeping people safe. But at the end of the day, it's, it's Dr. Henry's call and not ours, right? And this is now uh, the law, and you, you don't get to, to speed on the highway just because you think you're a better driver than somebody else. I will say, though, that one of the challenges we have here is, you know, last week when these orders were issued and the premier was was on television telling young people not to blow it. And think about that for a second, right? There's 192,000 people who work in the hospitality industry, and a number of them are younger citizens who've been working day after day after day to to, to toe the line on these protocols. And we have customers coming in and yelling at us and telling us not to follow the rules. Blaming young people ignores the fact that how how many of those people who are are in the trenches with us every day trying to, to make sure that we're we're staying on top of this and are flattening the curve, right? So it's not quite as simple um, as saying, well, you just shouldn't do these kinds of things, right? It's, it's a bit more complicated than that. And, you know, yes, they're, they're breaking the, the law, but you, you can understand where they're coming from, right? And when you hear the crowd chanting, you can hear the frustration in people's uh, voices as well. But but ultimately, um, you know, the solution here is the financial pain that people are feeling. Government needs to come to the table and find a way to support those folks. I mean, the decision shut our industry down for three or four weeks does mean about $500 million of activity not taking place in our economy. And, and Dr. Henry's not the person to see about that. You know, Premier Horgan and, and you know, Mr. Callan and others need to step up and provide some financial support or else those are the kinds of things you'll probably end up seeing people do more. Uh, when we look at that, and like you said, no matter what the reasoning is uh, and what, mm-hmm. or what Rebecca Matthews or, or Federico says, it is the public health order. It, it is what is expected of all restaurants and places with in-house dining. What should the penalty be? Do you think that restaurants that do that should lose their liquor license? I don't know the appropriate penalty, but I would absolutely say that there should be penalties for it and very serious penalties. And we, throughout this pandemic, have said we have to follow the rules and we're working with government as best we can to get industry the notice they need and the support they need. Uh, and yeah, they, you know, we've said whatever the fines are, if they don't work, add zeros to the end of them until people stop violating the rules. This is not an optional uh, law. This is uh, this is an act of law published under the from the public health orders, right? So. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that there need to be serious consequences for businesses that are not following the rules. But I also think government needs to balance that out so people feel they have a path forward. I mean, they're not doing it because they're inherently not law-abiding citizens. They're doing it because they're desperate, right? And, you know, their fear and their and their, their pain is not an excuse to break the law, but it is a clear indication the government needs to provide tens of millions of dollars of support to this hardest-hit industry right now. Uh, and, and I would agree with you as well. And, and speaking with the restaurant owners is a much different conversation than hearing some of the patrons who were at Corduroy and spoke. Uh, and it almost seemed like some, at least the ones that, that came out and wanted to talk to the TV cameras, uh, they were doing it. It almost seemed like they were more of the anti-masker, the denier crowd that thinks it's a big conspiracy, which I don't think helps at all. Uh, because people no. do understand why these restaurant owners are hurting. Like she said, she's got four kids. She's got to pay the bills and and yep. can't do that with her restaurant closed uh, absolutely and you see in the morning you know on a monday morning we're usually taking uh, you know, the, the fresh produce is usually coming in the back door putting it in the fridge for the menu we planned uh, and then to find out that later that day that the thousands of dollars you spent on that is not going to rot in your fridge because you're not able to serve indoor diners uh, it's, it's fundamentally, fundamentally unfair so you can understand where they're coming from I totally understand the frustrations of patrons, and we, we really appreciate as an industry that they're coming out and supporting us. But the way to do that now is to, to dine or drink on a patio uh, and to order takeout and delivery. I mean, in order, if, you, if that doesn't work, if you get some gift cards, you can, you can help us out when we're on the other side of this. But there's no excuse at this point in the pandemic for not following the law. Just like, I, I mean, where industry is coming from on this as well, there's also, you know, 13, 14 months into this, there's no excuse for not having more nuanced orders and more notice. I mean, we're, we're, we don't have to make quick uninformed decisions now, right? We understand what this is more, but at the end of the day, it, it comes down to, you know, no matter how much you're, you're hurting, you know, breaking the law is not the right solution. Uh, government support to get us through this so we have a, an industry to go back to and to reopen is the solution.
Uh, are you uh, satisfied with the level of information as we hear about uh, the different reasons for why these orders are brought in? And it kind of it became clear that the fact Whistler was closed was because of the P1 variant and that yeah. variant was was going very quickly. Uh, but again, when, when some restaurant owners are looking at this and saying, I've done everything, I've had no cases yeah. linked to my establishment, I couldn't possibly do more uh, and feel that there should be uh, a difference in the type of order. Do you feel like the industry is getting enough information about why? why these decisions are being made? We're definitely not getting enough information now. And I feel like there's, two, there's a couple of sides to that. I mean, the first off, uh, everybody at the provincial health office is working their tails off on this. And they haven't had you know, any time off in, in ages, right? And they're, they're exhausted. And they're doing everything they can to make the best decisions they have with the information they have. And things move quickly. I get that. But part of making our industry and others part of the solution is being very transparent with us about the data it doesn't necessarily help us to talk about the individual, you know, the, the daily press conferences, right, with the individual days, you know, increase or decrease in the number of cases. I mean, those are just data points that don't actually help. We're looking for trends. But what actually would help is to tell our industry what the problem is, because we could have easily modified protocols and done something different, right? We've got tables two meters apart. If that's not enough, we'll put them three meters apart, right? Yeah. There's other ways forward on this, which we can be part of the solution, just like we were when we got our industry reopened back in May of 2020, we were given information about what the challenges were. So that's one of our ongoing frustrations for sure. Um, and I know they're making the best decisions they can with the information they have. Um, but it would really help to get, to get us to buy into the solutions more sometimes if we knew where the cases were coming from. Because the hospitality industry, yes, there's been blips the same way there has everywhere in, the, in society, is not a significant source of viral transmission. It is safe to drive, dine out and to drink out in British Columbia. Um, so we're, we're hoping that we can uh, get more transparency on that. I mean, we do meet with public health officials, you know, on a weekly basis. And, um, you know, we're, we're working together to hopefully make April 19th the day we can reopen for indoor dining again. Uh, isn't that a source of frustration, though, as well? When you look at what the problem and the one thing we did hear from Dr. Henry was the problem was people not sticking to their households when dining. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't an order. It was a recommendation that you should only stick to your household. It wasn't as though restaurant workers were, were out there to enforce that. So that's got to be a bit frustrating, too, in that, again, you weren't doing anything wrong. It was actually consumers. It was patrons who were bending sure. those rules. Yeah, we've said it a number of times. I mean, we don't manufacture the virus in the kitchen. I'm not creating it behind the bar. Uh, our job is to keep you, you know, two meters apart to make sure your groups have no more than six. Uh, there's a possible way that I can tell whether or not you're with your bubble or with your family. I mean, you know, my situation, I, I, I'm a single guy living in downtown Vancouver. I live alone. I've got a very small group of people that I hang out with. So when I go out to a bar with that person, and even if you were to check our addresses, we live at different addresses, but we're the only people we hang out with, right? So right. that's that's the kind of difficulty of enforcing that. But absolutely, there are cases where individuals are not following the rules, and that is the source of the problem. And it's not sufficient to say, well, you know, in-home gatherings are banned, right? Well, the people are people are doing it anyway, right? That's a massive education challenge to help people understand why that is a high-risk factor. It is not the hospitality industry, right? I mean, that, that's why folks in our industry are so frustrated. We have stepped up over and over and over again during this pandemic. Now, I, you know, being 100% clear on this, I mean, the law is the law, I and mean, you have to follow it, and you should be punished and fined when you're not following the law. Uh, but, you know, government needs to have some nuanced responses to this because the frustration is real, um, and, and people's losing hope about their businesses at this point in the pandemic. I mean, that, those are justifiable concerns that need to be addressed. All right, Jeff, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Stay safe out there. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, there are concerns about COVID-19 variants and the spread of these variants in B.C. and the effects that is having on younger adults and younger adults not only being admitted to hospital, but also ending up in the ICU. The number on Saturday in B.C. was 90 ICU patients. That's almost as high as the all-time high in this pandemic, which was back in mid-December. Joining me now to to talk more about this is Dr. Michael Curry, clinical assistant professor with UBC, and he also clinically practices in the emergency department at Delta Hospital. Dr. Curry, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. How concerned are you about what appears to be a spread of these variants and this effect on younger people? So with the variants, I think there's two big questions. One is how it's going to impact our numbers. We know most of the variants, the reason they're growing compared to regular COVID 
is because they're more transmissible. So what we were doing to control COVID with other strains of the COVID virus may not work as well if there is a more transmissible virus. The second issue is probably in relation to vaccine susceptibility. We know that the vaccines do offer protection against other types of COVID, but it's not as robust as the original strain of COVID that they were designed to work against. And in particular, uh, the Brazilian the Brazilian, vac- the Brazilian variant of COVID-19, uh, the antibodies have a bit of a harder time responding to it. So they do respond to it. The vaccine does protect against it, but uh, the extent of the vaccine protection we're not as confident about that as we are with the original strain of COVID. And is that why we're seeing uh, more and more younger people uh, affected and ending up in hospital? I think it's I think it's twofold. One is the vaccine works, and as we're rolling it out to the most vulnerable populations, we're not seeing them showing up. So in my practice, early on in COVID, the people that were being admitted to hospital were people in their 80s, their 90s, often residents of a long-term care facility. Those were your typical COVID patients that we were seeing in hospital. We were seeing others, but they were generally being discharged home. Now that's changed. I'm not seeing that much of the older crowd, the 80 or 90-year-old population or the long-term care residents with COVID. And I think that's partially behavior, but I think it's also a big impact is the vaccines. But what I am seeing in the last couple of patients I've had to admit to hospital have all been people under age 45, relatively young or healthy people who've developed severe symptoms with COVID. Can you describe that a a little bit as well? Because I think while we can all imagine what that that looks like or what that would be like to go through it, we don't get a lot of those really uh, descriptive examples. We get numbers from our health officials and counts. But when you say somebody's coming in uh, with a severe case, can you kind of explain what that looks like for, for the first day or the first couple of days? For sure, Jill. So generally with COVID, we see the turning point probably about six or seven days into it. So for the first couple of days, you're going to have flu-like symptoms. You're going to have a cough, shortness of breath, muscle aches and pains, fever, and a lot of patients are reporting really bad headaches as well. Also, there's the famous symptom of loss of sense of smell or taste that not everybody has, but definitely a fair chunk of COVID patients have. The people who get seriously ill usually turn the corner around day six or day seven. They don't get sick right away, but their oxygen needs increase. And what's happening is their lungs are not working. So it's natural to be a little bit tired and short of breath when you're sick. We've all experienced that with a cold or a flu. But with COVID, a certain small percentage of people will get much more severe. And the real marker that we tend to use in the hospital is your ability to keep your oxygen level up. And we're having young people coming in, usually after being sick for about a week. Doc, I just can't breathe. Doc, I just can't breathe. And we measure their oxygen levels in the lungs, and they're quite low. And so we can give them supplemental oxygen in the hospital. That's relatively low-level intervention. But a small number of patients are going to need life support. They're going to need to be put on a ventilator. They are very, very sick with it. And usually it's about six or seven days in before people really turn south and start getting more sick. Uh, there was another doctor who was tweeting about this. And again, he was saying not to be pessimistic, but to, to tell people and try and explain exactly what it's like. And it's something you just mentioned as well, talking about giving supplemental oxygen, then having to make that decision. Do you actually need to go uh, to be intubated? And can you talk a little bit about what a big deal that is? It's, 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 a, it's a huge deal. Um, being the one thing that every physician during their training after they spend their time in the intensive care unit, which is where intubated patients end up after they're intubated in the emergency department, is the huge amount of respect and empathy for the people who've been through it. So when, we, when you do get intubated, we give you drugs to knock you out. We paralyze you. You can't even blink your eyelids in order to help us pass the tube into your throat. And then you're put on chemicals to keep you sedated because it's very uncomfortable and invasive to have a plastic tube put in your throat and air forced into it by a machine. It's very uncomfortable. So we keep people sedated as a result. And there's a bunch of complications that can arise.
arise from just being in the intensive care unit, not regardless of the disease that puts you there. These are things like bed sores. You won't be able to go to the bathroom, so you'll have to have a catheter to drain your bladder and you'll have a diaper for your bowel movements. You are not going to be able to scratch an inch or anything like that. You can't adjust your position, hence the risk of the bed sores. You can get an infection in your lungs, and also you can have damage to your lungs from the ventilator pushing air back and forth into you. So that's just being on the ventilator. On top of that, you have a COVID infection that's making you very sick to this point where your lungs can't work. They begin to fill up with fluid and they get inflamed. And when that happens, it puts stress on other parts of your body, particularly your heart, to a lesser extent, your kidneys. So being put on oxygen in hospital, that's not that severe. You're going around with an oxygen tank or a mask. You're going to feel tired. You're going to be sick. But you're going to be able to, you'll be awake. You can text on your phone. But being in the intensive care unit is you're only there because it's a life-threatening situation and it's a very, very unpleasant and invasive experience to go through. And when we're talking about people as well, especially I think the younger group, there there tends to be a, the thought that we're talking about people that maybe have pre-existing health conditions or there's a reason why some people end up on a ventilator and others don't. Is there any rhyme or reason to it? We do know that in general, if you're more sick, you're at higher risk. We know that obesity seems to correlate with it. So people who are otherwise well but significantly overweight seem to be at higher risk. And then there's a certain X factor we don't know. We do, I've definitely seen cases of people who are otherwise completely healthy. They are not overweight. They're actually aggravated. They exercise, they run, they eat a good diet, and they still end up with COVID. And there's a certain X factor that some people, for whatever reason, be it genetics, be it bad luck, they just seem to get a very bad case. So just because you're young, you're healthy, you exercise, you eat right, you don't smoke, that doesn't make you immune from COVID. It gives you better chances of having mild illness for sure, but it's no guarantee that you won't get extremely sick. Do you think we should be focusing then, and I think there's a certain group in any age group that would put up your hand and say, I'll go next for a vaccine. But from what we're seeing in the emergency departments and in hospitals, is there a need to shift the vaccine to a younger age group because we're seeing the the increase? Or is it just a matter of everybody still needs to be very careful and wait your turn for vaccine? You know, I, I think it's probably the latter. We're constrained by our vaccine supplies. So my understanding is is that to date we've generally been getting getting vaccines in arms pretty quickly after they arrive here in British Columbia. I've worked a couple of vaccine clinics and we work until we run out of vaccine. So I think we're doing as best we can. And I think the age-based strategy is probably the right approach. We do know that age is a predictor. Your chance of dying when you get COVID if you're under age 40 is under 1%, whereas if you're over age 80, it's around 20%. So we do know age is definitely a predictor, but just because you've got less than 1% risk of dying from COVID, 1% is a pretty big risk. And if we multiply that by thousands of patients getting COVID, you know, we're going to see people that are young dying of COVID. Uh, Unfortunately, I do think the older people, because of their increased vulnerability, should probably still be at the front of the queue. And again, do you think we are seeing these more severe cases because of the variants? I think it's partially the variants, although the evidence is sort of split on what effect they have on disease severity. But I think the bigger numbers just are numbers. When we're having over a thousand people a day pretty consistently with it, that, that small number of people who get COVID are being multiplied or get severe COVID that small percentage risk, when you multiply it by a 1,000, a 1% risk all of a sudden becomes 10 real people. All right, Dr. Curry, we'll leave it there. I appreciate so much that you took the time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, you might not know this, but it is raccoon birthing season. Yes, it is. And that means for some people, raccoons might be moving into their yards, into their shed areas, and that might not be the house guest you were looking for. So what do you do if you are suddenly 
finding yourself the foster parent of a bunch of baby raccoons. My next guest is here to talk about pest control. In just a few moments, we're also going to open up the phone lines in case you have any uh, other questions, not just raccoons, other pests as well. Mike Laundry is with us, the owner of Westside Pest Control. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Joe. How big of a deal is raccoon birthing season? What do people need to know? Well, it is a pretty big deal. If you're, if you're in your home, you're definitely going to know that something is above your head in your, in your attic. Uh, so that's one of the first things to, uh, to do is to, is to listen. Um, if you hear a little bit of scratching up there, it's probably just, well, I say just, rats or squirrels. If it sounds like a person is thumping around in your attic, it's likely a raccoon. Okay, that's a good way to keep to keep the two uh, separated. Um, are, are they do raccoons choose attics? Is that kind of their their place of choice, or what other areas should people be watching out for? Um, yeah, they will reside below 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 decks or sheds um, uh, or inside sheds even. Uh, so you do want to be cautious uh, if you're going to pull the lawnmower out for the first time this spring and the doors are broken to the side of the shed. Um, uh, enter with caution, uh, but they do prefer attics because attics are uh, are are raised up, so they're away from any natural predators. So that means that mom can go out and find food and know that uh, uh, the little raccoons are safe when she's uh, when she's out rummaging through garbage cans at night. Um, and it's also warm too, um, uh, as we all know. There's there's frost still happening even though it's the beginning of April and uh, a warm and dry place is preferred. And I would imagine the mothers can get a bit territorial or can get uh, they wouldn't like it so much if humans are coming near even if it's by accident coming near uh, their babies. Oh yeah Um, absolutely I'm sure lots of people have 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 seen it firsthand or heard stories but uh, yeah raccoons are very territorial and uh uh, for their size, they can uh, inflict a lot of a lot of damage and be quite vicious when uh, when their babies are involved. Uh, so, when you get involved, if someone calls you and says, uh, "There's a bunch of them in the attic, or they're under the deck in the backyard," I found these raccoons. Can you do anything with them when they're still in the baby stage, or how do you deal with that? So, when they're still in, in the in the baby stage, as much as possible, we like to let them be as long as they're not causing significant damage to someone's to someone's property when they're in an in an attic or a crawl or, or a crawl space uh, we have actually another team of wildlife specialists that we refer that work out to when it comes to being below decks or in sheds or um, uh, sometimes in, in crawl spaces in in those cases it, it's pretty it's pretty easy for us to get out there and kind of and kind of flush them out um, and uh, um, and then seal the area off. So mum will take the little ones to another location. Again, if it's outside, if it's under a deck, under a shed, as long as they're not causing harm to people on the property, it's in the best interest of the raccoon to leave them be until June, if possible, when they're all able to uh, come and go, um, you know, when the, when the little ones are out walking. Right. Okay. So when you say flush them out too, I think a lot of people get concerned on how uh, we're dealing with uh, these animals, but it's uh, it sounds like it's a humane way of dealing with it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, may- maybe not so humane for the pest control technician, but uh, <laughs> for the raccoons, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's uh, um, one, of the, one of the challenges that uh, our industry had many years ago um, was the restriction of um, taking raccoons and, and relocating them far away from their homes. Um, and we were one of the first companies many years ago to stop doing that because if you take them out of their natural setting and relocate them, say, across a body of water from Richmond to Vancouver or to Stanley Park or the North Shore, then that raccoon stands very little chance of survival because they're in a new environment most raccoons actually have up to 20 den sites within an eight block radius so you know if you kick them out of their primary residence their vacation home is probably more than ample enough for them to uh, to move into 
Huh, I did not know that. Interesting. And they actually do. While they can be a pest and you don't really want them living under your deck or in your attic, raccoons actually do uh, play a pretty important role, whether it's, uh, I don't know, rat control or what they bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, in, in some in some concentrated areas in, in Vancouver and especially in Toronto as well, there would definitely be people who would uh, who would argue that raccoons are possibly more uh, more of a nuisance than a that than a help. But um, yes, every every animal definitely plays a role, raccoons included. All right. We've got a couple of calls. I was going to wait till after the break, but let's take a couple of questions uh, right now. Uh, Bev is on the line in Delta. Bev, good afternoon. Do you have a question? Hi, Jill. Um, Yes, I do. Um, I have a rat infestation in my backyard that the neighbor is causing um, the rats to be in my yard, and he's throwing out bird seed. And also, um, this uh, this is just terrible. I've caught 18 and a half rats in my traps, the uh, Tomcat black traps, and I still have more. Um, I just want to know what I can do about this. (laughs) Wow, 18 and a half rats. Yeah, Uh, the half is I had a head, but no body. Okay, okay. Uh, Wow. Uh, Yeah, no, we, it's, it's, uh, that 18 is a, is, is a lot, especially within a short period of time. Um, bird feeders are, are wonderful things, um, uh, as long as they're used appropriately, as long as uh, pests can't gain access to them, and they're and they're in an area where excess seed is going to be swept up on a regular basis underneath the feeder. Um, otherwise, you do find in a lot of areas that they become more of a rat feeder than a than a bird feeder. Um, with eighteen, I would imagine there's probably uh, there's probably other food sources as well as other things that are that are causing the rats to be happy in that environment. So, um, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's speaking to your neighbors is probably going to be the best first step if, if you're on speaking terms with them. Um, and then uh, maybe getting on board with them as well. Um, if you're just doing trapping alone, you're probably going to need to include them and maybe even some of the other neighbors in your, in your neighborhood to get a handle on it. All right, Bev, thanks for that question. 18 and a half rats. Uh, let's take one more question uh, before the break. Jazz in Delta, what's your question? Oh, hi there. Uh, my question is, I know raccoons are quite annoying, but I have another creature, woodpeckers. Every season I go through them quite a bit. I tried numerous things. Is there any other thing that I can do to stop them picking up my, uh, my house all the time? So is there is there just one particular area of the house that they're interested in, or is it uh, does it seem sort of uh, sort of random where they choose to uh, to peck on the side of the house? Yeah, no, randomly. If I stop on one area, they go to the other corner, and then I go to the other corner, they go to another corner. So it's like it's like a magnet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well. Woodpeckers are, are typically interested in a, in a couple of things. Um, uh, one is, is food and um, well, th- three things. One, one is food. Another is, is creating a nest. Um, and then another one is just attracting attention for a, a mate. Uh, so when you hear them kind of clattering away on, on metal in the spring, they're just looking for a, a mate. If, um, if, they're, if they're picking... Uh, continuously in one area, but only creating small holes, it's more than likely that there's more than just a woodpecker infestation. There's probably um, some some moisture that's gotten into the wood, and as a result of that, uh, an insect infestation. And until that's dealt with, it's likely to be something that reoccurs. One of the, uh, one of the treatment options that we offer is um, putting netting up temporarily for about six weeks until the uh until the woodpeckers have been conditioned to go somewhere else and then uh and then it and then it can be taken down but uh you really want to get to the root uh root cause of the problem all right we are taking your questions all things pest related talking with mike laundry who is the owner of the west side pest control let's try and get to everybody on the open line and megan in delta what's your question 
Oh, hi. I just wanted to know how to get rid of carpenter ants. I know they're starting up again as it gets warmer. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, uh, are you, Megan, are you seeing the carpenter ants inside the home or outside yeah, the home? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. They got into um, our back closet uh, on the side of the house last year, and I've been trying to deal with them like last year, and I know that they're starting again this year, so... Okay, so um, uh, there are there, there are few simple and easy methods, unfortunately, for carpenter ants. I love giving everyone DIY tips. Uh, when it comes to carpenter ants, they usually require professional services to eliminate them permanently. Carpenter ants, unfortunately, don't reside um, outside the home. When you see them inside the home, they're usually residing somewhere in the exterior walls. Right. And using things like like ant baits or or sugar and and borax and those different types of treatments will sometimes help to slow them down a little bit. But uh, to properly eliminate them, you really need to get some commercial grade products inside the wall void where the nests are are located. Um, one of the things that you can do um, that's always a, a, a big help, whether you're going to DIY it or uh-huh. have yeah. a professional come in, is is do your best to locate where the ants are coming in. It sounds like you've got a good idea where they're located inside well, they, the house, but they crawl along the fence and then they they crawl up the phone line. Yep. So they go along the phone line and then I've we've seen them kind of go. We have a cedar house, so it, they kind of go in under the groove of the cedar wood. Yeah, and that's, it's that's, like, but they're everywhere. Like the neighbors have them. I mean, they're just seem like they're. I mean, I must have killed myself. We, my husband, did spray some, you know, store bought spray last year in the closet, and that actually we didn't see them anymore in the house. But I could see them crawling still on the outside along the phone line. And yeah, so that's a that's a very common uh, misconception is. Um, uh, spraying carpenter ants inside will often stop them from coming in inside the house because it sets up um, what's essentially an, an invisible barrier. Unlike pavement ants, the small uh, small sugar ants, carpenter ants are only coming into the structure as a place of harborage, not as a place to sustain any any food. Um, Do they literally? I know that you're on a time limit for other calls, but do they actually eat all the wood inside your house if you can't eliminate them? No. So unlike unlike termites, carpenter ants are only are only um, chewing and digging out and foraging tunnels to to live in. So it's only as much space as they need to live in and to travel and okay. to create their nest. Now yeah. over years, as they start to build satellite nests. They can do significant structural damage, but that's over a number of years as opposed to termites that can do that damage in, in weeks or, or months. Right, um, yeah. uh, so you definitely want to eliminate them. Um, and uh, um, locating where the nests are is going to be the best the best start to that. Again, what happens often in the spring is the carpenter ants will appear and then they'll go away. We'll, we'll have clients who will call us and say, no, no, it, it's okay. The carpenters have disappeared. But what's actually happened is spring has fully arrived, and now all of the insect proteins and plant carbohydrates that are plentiful in the garden are there for the carpenters. They're still living in the exterior wall of the house, but only going outside of the garden and back into the wall and no longer entering the interior that they were in in the early part of spring when it's still cold. All right, let's uh, move on. We've got a few more calls on the line. Jill in Delta, what's your question? Oh, hi there. Uh, we've got a problem with rabbits. We've lived in this house for 20 years, and every year my precious little shoots get nibbled away by these little cute little garden rats. And uh, how, is, is there a way to uh, keep these things away from our yard? We live right beside the watershed, so it's uh, you know we're fighting nature, but uh, is there anything we can do to, to stop their invasion um, yeah, short of some some kind of physical exclusion or or trapping, um, I I wouldn't recommend going out to Home Depot, for instance, uh, uh, and and or any hardware store and buying things like um, uh, the cayenne pepper shakers and and stuff like that. Unfortunately, those don't 
work very well. Once the rats have established a, a food source, they're going to they're they're going to ig- ignore any other uh, unpleasant de- deterrents. Um, and the other thing with a lot of those different products, whether it's essential oils or or again like a cayenne pepper shaker or something like that. Um, uh, th- those are all going to wash away for the most part whenever it uh, whenever it rains. Um, so building some kind of a, of a physical mesh enclosure is is your best bet. And um, and second to that, we recommend trapping stations. Trapping stations are of course more humane than using than using rat poison. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there isn't a, a silver bullet when it comes to exterior rat issues. It's for any of the athletes who have been tested positive for COVID-19. We first learned about the COVID-19 situation last week. This past weekend, as you likely know, the situation took a turn for the worse. We now know several players are positive with the virus. Our show contributor is John Jang. He brings us the very latest right now with the ongoing situation. He was also speaking with fans to talk out and talk about and find out what they would like to see. Good afternoon, Jill. Last Tuesday, the Vancouver Canucks learned that one of their players, Adam Gaudet, tested positive for COVID-19. In the six days since, that number has now grown. 20 players and three coaches are now confirmed to be positive for the virus. I spoke with ESPN's Emily Kaplan earlier this morning about this ongoing situation and what we know right now. Yeah, it's really hard to pin down a number, but um, from what I've been told, it's more than half the team at least three coaches and also some family members that have been affected as well. Um, And what's really scary about this is that a lot of the players who were infected um, are symptomatic. I was hearing over the weekend um, they were, you know, feeling fatigue, uh, dehydration. There was at least one case of a player who needed an IV. The good news is I was starting to hear some reports by Sunday afternoon of some players' conditions improving. Um, But altogether, this is just really scary, especially for so many people who think we're so close to the finish line of this pandemic, but we're just really not there yet. What I've heard is that a number of players seem to be positive for the P1 variant of COVID-19. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's what it's believed to be. Um, You know, I've heard that there's at least a couple players that um, have that. And, you know, based off the symptoms we're hearing, um, the symptoms for this variant seem a lot harsher, you know, than just COVID-19 or or maybe the virus that was existing a month or two months ago. So that, again, has given a lot of people pause, um, you know, and I think the NHL is now saying the Canucks have to be a cautionary tale. And it's one of the reasons why the NHL and NHLPA sent out a memo to teams over the weekend, just reminding them this isn't over yet. You've got to stay vigilant. You've got to keep wearing your mask, even if you are vaccinated, because there are a lot of folks here in the U.S., some NHL players and coaches who now have gotten their shots. And Emily, what makes this particular situation with the Canucks so different from other teams that have had to deal with a large number of uh, positive cases this season? It's the symptoms for sure. Um, you know, we, we've heard of some players who have had the virus who have talked about, you know, in isolated cases, their experience of, you know, being fatigued, um, having the chills in bed, maybe being immobile for a couple of days. But the word that I was hearing from the Vancouver Canucks, even just texting with some players um, on the team, uh, player agents who represent players on the team, um, it sounded really bad. Like guys couldn't even get out of bed again an IV for dehydration, if you're a professional athlete, that's, um, that's pretty serious stuff. So I think the concern now is how do they recover? Because everything we know also about this virus is it's not a linear recovery. You know, there can be some long-lasting effects to your respiratory system, um, as well as your muscle groups. Like, when can this team get on the ice safely? And Jill, family physician Dr. Barinder Narung was a guest on Global News BC this morning, speaking with Sonia Sunger on his level of concern with this Canucks outbreak. I think so. And I I think it is important to realize that they have um, a different testing program for the NHL as well, where they test players every day. So um, naturally, they won't be able to isolate between every test. But if someone gets tested while symptomatic, then you have to make sure you're isolated until you get the result. Absolutely. And, you know, we're hearing from a number of doctors that younger and younger people are in hospital with very serious uh, conditions. So considering what we're seeing with these variants, uh, you know, some are suggesting that younger people should be vaccinated earlier. What are your thoughts on that? 
I think we need to vaccinate people who are at the most risk right now. And if the numbers consistently show that the younger population is at higher risk, I think it's definitely something that should be worth consideration because not only are people, uh, younger people at higher risk of contracting it, they're also getting sicker um, uh, courses. And we still don't know what the long haul expectations are. And, and back to the Canucks, and, you know, I don't think we should be thinking about when they're going to be playing again. We should be thinking about their health, their safety and their family safety right now. But what do Canucks fans think? Should the team forfeit the rest of the season with 19 games left, or should they do their best to play it out? I spoke with several Canucks fans, including Jean Treverton, on if she thinks it's time to throw in the towel. Well, I think probably not. I mean, also Utica is in COVID protocol. I think something like nine of their players have it, so you have to see who's going to be brought up. Plenty of kids down there don't have any experience at all. Um, so it would be really interesting, especially if somehow they managed to beat the Leafs. I think that would be wonderful. Otherwise, I think it also depends how badly everybody has COVID. You know, there's been so many conflicting reports about the amount of people that have it and the severity of the symptoms, but there's been no straightforward answer. Obviously, the team can't actually release their own statement stating anything about this, so just kind of waiting for the NHL to come around and say exactly what's going on. And then also, there's going to be the whole kerfuffle about Godet being allowed to practice after a positive test, so I think they're just kind of waiting to see what the end result is here with the Uh, with the players another fan jason chu shared a similar opinion based on like past the way other teams have dealt with it you play the games as best you can with available players i don't think they should immediately forfeit um last year when the broncos they didn't have a quarterback in the nfl uh they had a backup wide receiver uh, step in and be the quarterback it was uh, a sight to be seen uh everyone was kind of disappointed the Broncos were definitely disappointed, but they still play the game. So I don't think the Canucks should just immediately forfeit. They should definitely try to fill as many roster spaces as possible with, you know, whatever. And finally, we bring in Ben Dooley. He's the lead producer of The Jill Bennett Show, who would emphatically support the players if they decide to walk away from the season. Yeah, absolutely, I, I would, John. I mean, when you look at it realistically, all these guys... Uh, who who have COVID? I think we're we're up to sixteen now. They're, they're out for for two weeks at at a minimum, and so it, it's two weeks before this team can can realistically um, hit the ice again. And when you take into account the scheduling, the the health risks, uh, you know these guys. There's no guarantee these guys will be back to a hundred percent in two weeks. I just don't think it makes any sense. Uh, to to attempt to to bring back the season under the current uh, circumstances, it's just uh, too much risk and and not enough reward um, for my liking. And Jill, for the record, only two games in NHL history have ever been forfeited. Once during the 1917-18 season and again during the 1954-55 season. But these were individual games, so it'll be a far more complex issue if the Canucks decide to forfeit their 19 remaining games.